Hey everyone, welcome to the Peter Atia Drive. I'm your host, Peter Atia. The drive is a result of my hunger for optimizing performance, health, longevity, critical thinking, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working with some of the most successful top performing individuals in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you live a higher quality, more fulfilling life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at peteratiamd.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of The Drive. My guest this week is Sid Mukherjee, who is a remarkable writer, in fact, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, and a remarkable physician and scientist. In fact, probably there's nobody I know that combines those three things as efficaciously as Sid does. His biography reads like I'm making it up. He studied biology at Stanford. He then became a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford, earned his PhD in immunology, returned to the United States to earn his MD at Harvard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward to today, he is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at Columbia University, which is where we met to do this interview. He has published also and continues to publish consistently in both the New Yorker and the New York Times, which in and of itself is quite a distinction, as I would learn. Typically, one is on either side of those, but not both. And of course, he's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Nature, in addition to a whole host of other medical journals. I met Sid probably five years ago at a dinner that was set up by Lou Cantley, someone I'll be interviewing very shortly, who will be a guest obviously soon. And while I remember that dinner very well, I was surprised to learn that it left such an impression on Sid. And he described it as something to the effect of one of the most interesting and perhaps important scientific collaborations in his life that stemmed from it as we kind of jotted out a napkin experiment that went on to become a paper that was published by a group led by Lou and Sid. And that paper was published this past summer, and we talk about that in detail. That paper involved the use of ketogenic diets in combination with a class of drugs called PI3 kinase inhibitors. We're going to go into great detail on that, so I obviously don't want to repeat any of that stuff here. But I think for those of you that are interested in cancer, you're obviously going to find this episode very interesting. But The other thing with Sid is it doesn't matter if you have no interest in cancer. I think you'll find this discussion interesting because Sid has a way of making everything interesting. And that to me is part of Sid's gift. When I got his book, The Gene, in the summer of 2016, when it came out, it's one of probably only six books in my life that I was not able to stop reading from the moment I started. So it was one of those things where Everything else I was doing had to be put aside for a few days until I could finish that book. That's just the way Sid writes. And that's also the way he speaks. He is a unique human being. And I think that will come across in this interview. The other thing that was a total pleasant surprise to me was in doing the research for this podcast was coming across a book that I was ashamed to admit I didn't even know he'd written called The Laws of Medicine, or I believe it's called The Three Laws of Medicine. And we talk about these three laws. And rather than even stating them now, I just think it's worth, this podcast is worth the price of admission just on the basis of understanding those three laws. So with that, I hope you will welcome Sid to the show. And I do want to just remind folks to please sign up for the email list. I've been putting a lot of effort into those emails every Sunday morning. They go out and I hope that they're at least worth some value. I I think they are. And I like to be able to kind of share things with folks that I'm reading or seeing along the way. And they don't always have to do with longevity. Keep in mind, 
one of the things that I think takes up more actual time than anything else with respect to this podcast is putting together the show notes. So Bob and Travis work really hard on those. And the feedback we've been getting is incredible. People keep saying, my God, how do you make these things? And the short answer is, I don't. I don't do any of it. But Bob and Travis do, especially Travis. And I think that if you spend a few minutes looking at that stuff, especially if you find some of the content challenging, and when we get into technical terms, which we do on some of the podcasts, you're pretty much going to find everything in the show notes. Lastly, if you're enjoying this, it would be an honor if you would head on over to Apple Podcast Reviews and leave us a review, especially if it's a positive one. But we'll take a negative one too, as long as you can be constructive in your feedback. So without further delay, here is my guest today, Sid Mukherjee. Hey, Sid. Thanks for uh, making time. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I don't get up to this part of the city very often. It's a bit of a hike. Well, it's a massive medical school, and it's hard to imagine it anywhere else except for uptown in this way. You know, we go right all the way to the river. It's amazing. And the last time I was up here was to see another one of your colleagues on the other side of the street, Rudy Leibel, who's a good friend. And I used to be up here a lot more often. So it was nice to come back. Most of our podcasts go really, really long. This one, I don't think we have that luxury of time. So I kind of want to get right into things. But before we do, I, I certainly think for the listener who doesn't know you well, your your background, which I'll allude to a lot in the introductions, we don't spend too much time on it. But you grew up in India, came to the US. Did you do college here? Or? I went to college at Stanford, yeah. Oh, that's right. You went to undergrad at Stanford. Okay, then medical school at Harvard. Actually, then in the middle, I was away for three years. I did. Uh, you did a Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah, Are you a Rhodes Scholar? Yeah, I was a Rhodes Scholar, and that's where I got my PhD. And my PhD is in immunology, mm -hmm. which is a subject that I left behind. Went to medical school at Harvard Medical School, then did my fellowship, my internship, my residency at Mass General Hospital, uh, fellowship at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute, and then started my own lab and clinical practice at Columbia University and have come back to immunology in a strange, wide, widening circle of a way. Yeah. The first time we met was a dinner that Luke Hantley had planned for us. This is about three or four years ago. And I remember at the time, the topic that Lou is passionate about that I'm passionate about was sort of metabolism of cancer. And at the time, I, it wasn't something that seemed as interesting to you as it is today. And I know today I want to talk so much more about that because <laughs> yes. the work you guys have done in the last few years is in many ways what I think is the most interesting stuff to talk about. It was also a tough dinner because you don't eat most things. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, hard to have dinner with someone when, you, when half the menu is off the menu. So anyway, we somehow managed and scraped by and it was a wonderful evening. And actually, led to, what was that, five years ago? Yeah. Led to one of the most interesting and perhaps important scientific collaborations in my life. With Lou. S with Lou. But it was at that dinner which we kind of hammered. It was in a Japanese restaurant on the Upper East Side in a tiny little place. You uh, remember? I, that's exactly, I know exactly where exactly we were. I know exactly where yeah. it was. Well, because we wrote on a, you know, it, it was a little bit like one of these napkin experiments where you write on a napkin an idea, and that idea takes five years to come alive. Uh, this thing that was sketched on a napkin that evening, and is now leading to a actually kind of a massive clinical trial across multiple sites, very energetic teams coming into all of this out of that little napkin on a Japanese restaurant. Yeah, that was a really fun night. Prior to that, I had read The Emperor of All Maladies. I don't think the gene was out yet. The gene was not out yet. I want to spend just a couple minutes on The Emperor of All Maladies because if there's anybody listening to this who hasn't read it, you won the Pulitzer Prize for that book, I believe. I did, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's a must read. Having myself studied in oncology, there was so much that I learned. You know, I trained at Hopkins, which is, you know, so we're in the Halstead School of 
where the mastectomy was created, where many of these things were created. But to really understand the history of Bernard Fisher's role in the mastectomy, it's just an unbelievable story. My only criticism was at the time, quite a depressing story. Yeah, you know. I mean, I'm not saying that to be critical. I, no, the, I the, that. It's, no, it's I, less a criticism of you than the field. No, no. It was to me actually interestingly. People often bring this up idea up. For me, it was actually it's far from a depressing story. It's just the opposite. In fact, if we don't contend with the question of how, I mean, the emperor of all maladies, just for people who don't know, is a history of cancer starting from its first description in Egypt right down to my own patients. Uh, thousands of years of a journey against a disease that seems to morph and change over time. Every time we look at it, this has a new form. It reflects our own diversity to some extent, our own wiliness, our own imagination as humans. So to me, not a depressing book because it is a way to look directly at the face of the enemy. And I don't find that depressing. I find that clarifying. And there are many, many high points in this journey. There's the invention of the great surgeries that save tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives around the world, the dramatic advances against breast cancer, and most importantly, against some variants of leukemia where the mortality was 100% in 1950 and is 5 or 10% now. A 95% change in mortality is a huge difference in must rank as one of the great medical inventions of our time. So for me, far from a depressing book, but a very, to me, a clarifying book that tries to clarify why we're here today, where we're going, what happens next, uh, why we're not doing certain things, why we are doing certain things. So that's my impression of what happened at the end of that book. When did the idea to write, as it's really referred to, the biography of cancer, when did that idea come to you? Was it in your fellowship and your training at some point? Yeah, I was training and it was a very simple moment. Actually, I, I remember a woman who I was treating for cancer came to me and I was giving her yet another trial of targeted therapy, a new kind of therapy. And she finally sat down one, one afternoon and she said, where are we going with all of this? Why are we here? How did we get here? And she was, of course, asking it in a very personal level, but you could take that question and make it a, a much, much larger question. Where are we going in this battle against cancer? Why, why are we here today? What happens next? Why aren't we elsewhere? How much of this is the wiliness of, of this family of diseases? How much of this is the capacity to use our the greatest skills of our imagination against this illness. You know, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, when you asked a child what the outer limit of their scientific imagination was, they would say, I want to be a rocket scientist and I want to send a rocket to the moon. By the 1950s, 60s, 70s, if you asked that same child what the outer limits of their scientific imagination would bring to the world, they would say, I want to cure cancer. It began to define the limits of our Scientific prowess are the limits of our imagination, a world without cancer. So there is a sense in which this is such an elemental illness. So much of our culture is now defined through the lens of cancer. And what was shocking as a fellow when I started encountering cancer in the clinical sense, what was shocking was that there was no such history, that it was all ad hoc and we knew little bits and pieces of it. It was like looking at the enemy through a patchwork quilt with little holes in it. And the attempt here was to say, well, what is the full story? What, what does the story look like? When did this start? Why did we end up here? What happens tomorrow? What happens way into the future, 100 years? What will cancer look like? And a lot of thought experiments go into the book. So that's sort of the genesis of, of the book, and that's how it came about. The research is also remarkable for a book like that. Anyone who's read it will appreciate. And, and again, I think what's nice is this is one of those books where 
you can be an oncologist and read it and find it staggering. And you can be someone who has lost a loved one to cancer but wouldn't know the difference between a sarcoma and a leiomyosarcoma. doesn't matter. The book resonates, which obviously speaks to your ability to tell a story. And, and that's sort of, to me, what's mind-boggling about that book is the way, and it's the same in the gene, by the way, is that you weave in and out of a personal story and then something that's very dense scientifically. And on a personal level, this is challenging because I'm in the process, as you know, of writing a book and doing a pretty lousy job of it, I think. But it's this challenge of you want to be able to do the science justice, but you need to be able to tell a story. So how does the, the scientist, Sid Mukherjee, get along with the writer, Sid Mukherjee? Well, I don't think they're two separate people. I think they're integrated into one person, and that's very important. There are many people in my world. They wrote as a process of thinking. Stephen Jay Gould comes to mind, not to draw a ludicrous comparison. Charles Darwin wrote to think. Oliver Sacks wrote to think. I would suspect that Atul Gawande writes to think. I mean, I know Atul, so. So the two people are fundamentally not different people in my brain. In order to do the scientific work that I do, I need to think it through, often through the essays that I work on. And they inspire, in a kind of yin-yang or roundabout way, circular way, ways to find new ways of thinking about the world, the cancer world. So there isn't a conflict. I don't feel a conflict. The process is probably of interest. I mean, the process is that when I started writing Emperor, I sort of made a personal vow or a strategy in, in writing that this was my first book. I'd never written a book before. I wrote down some principles or tenets that I would follow, um, and I've kept to them in every book since. The first one was that there will be no scientific abstraction. At no place or point shall you go through five pages or three pages without there being a human being in the middle of this. Um, I'm, a, I'm a translational researcher. I'm a human scientist. And that meant that I made a personal promise that you wouldn't go through five pages without understanding what the payoff of these pages that you've really worked your way through, often as a reader, what the payoff is. So if you look carefully through that book, every five to seven pages, the story comes alive in a human story, in a scientific story, and in a, in a scientist's story. They all intersect. They, and sometimes through my stories, there are times that are tough when I'm writing about the description of the first cancer-causing genes, oncogenes, and their mutations, it's tough to say, well, what's the human being? This is a laboratory experiment in which you sprinkle tens of thousands of bits of genetic material onto cells and ask the question, which cells become turned from normal to cancerous? And that's the way you trap one of these cancer-causing oncogenes. What's the human story behind it? Well, there are two stories. One story is quite lovely. It's the story of Bob Weinberg, the scientist who you know, walking through Boston in a snowstorm and suddenly realizing, not in a one-to-one -one manner, but this idea of sprinkling tens of thousands of genes onto pieces of genetic material onto cells, like a snowstorm of genes. There's a kind of congruence to that story. It's not like Bob Weinberg woke up one morning and saw a snowstorm and said, that's the experiment I should do. But there's a kind of emotional congruence to the back story of a scientist but then the second story that illustrates this point is to walk through a patient telescoping down or rather microscoping downwards from their outer cancer, a tumor, a lump, a mass that is about to kill them, a real patient of mine, a man with lung cancer. And slowly in that same story of this man's illness, 
begin to microscope down to the fact that he actually has in his cells this mutant gene that Bob Weinberg once caught in this snowstorm of sprinkling genes on cells. And all of a sudden, this man's cancer, he's sitting in a room in Boston, surrounded by his family, dying of metastatic lung cancer. But at the heart, at the root of that lung cancer, is that very same gene, that very same oncogene that was discovered, described 10, 20 years before in a paper, in a kind of dry, abstract scientific paper. And all of a sudden, that gene, the genetic material that can drive the growth of a normal cell and make, make it malignant, make it metastatic, so metastatic, so malignant, that our best medicine, our best minds can't stop the growth of this aberrant cell, all being driven in part by that very same gene that was trapped 20 years ago in, in a laboratory experiment on rat cells. So all of a sudden, this thing comes alive to you in a way that bec and becomes consequential. If you didn't know the identity of the gene, you would not understand why on earth, this 70-year-old man in perfectly good health is all of a sudden decimated by one or two or four or eight mutant genes in his cells that suddenly take over and drive the growth of these cells. Anyway, that's one example that comes up over and over again. That was the first tenet. That was the first tenet, So what yes. was the second one? <laughs> there, there are many, so I'm not going to go through all the tenets. But the second one was that this book, all these books, should be fundamentally readable by everyone. You talked about this already. It should be like a kaleidoscope, that if you turn the book leftwards and you, you see it as an oncologist, it's still interesting. The pattern changes. If you turn the book rightwards and say you're a, an anthropologist, it still is interesting. If you turn the kaleidoscope upside down and, and shake it and, and there's a new pattern that's formed, it's because you're reading the book now as a clinical scientist. Or you're reading the book because your daughter has leukemia and you're the father of a patient with, with leukemia. Or you're reading it because you yourself have been diagnosed with breast cancer or your mother has. And all of a sudden, the kaleidoscope changes. But the point is that the object remains the same. It's the same book, but you can read the book in various different ways. You can come into it different ways. Often when I'm in, this sounds like a, a strange statement, Often when I come back from the wards, I reread my own writing to figure out sort of what was I thinking then in 2008 when I wrote those sentences and how does that change now? Has it really been 10 years? It's been 10 years. So I should tell you that there will be a 10-year <laughs> update to The Emperor. There'll be three, other, three additional chapters. I assume one of them will be immunotherapy as an update. That's right. So they're very broadly three sections that are updated, and I've thought about it for a long time. So there'll be an updated section on prevention. Mm. There'll be an updated section on early detection and an updated section on treatment. So th that's the very broad, three big, broad chapters. But in every chapter, there will be deeper dives into what's happened now since the last 10 years and within the treatment section. And potentially within the prevention section, there'll be a huge role of the immune system, which was not fully appreciated in 2010. I thought that was the biggest distinction between the book when I read it and then the PBS special, the Ken Burns special, which of course, again, we'll link to all of these things in the show notes yeah. here. But one, you got to read the book. But two, I can't recommend enough the Ken Burns special. They did an unbelievable job, I think, did, yeah. sharing your voice. And that was the biggest. I remember watching it thinking, oh, wow, there's a big difference here. Because was there three installments or five? I can't remember. Yeah, the third installment felt like it was half immunotherapy. It was half immunotherapy. Well, because part of the reason was that, again, this brings me to the next tenet in the book, 
or writing the book, the next tenet was that there is so much cancer research in laboratories going on everywhere. And the tenet or the principle was that unless that research has manifest itself in a human drug, in a human medicine, in a, in a, in a reconception of how we think about preventing, treating, or detecting cancer, in a fundamental reconception of those ideas, it won't get into the book. So tumor immunology, of course, had been around for a very long time, Coley's toxins, famously, and, and other such efforts very, very early on. But in 2010, we were at the edge of that moment in which we began to use tumor immunology in human beings as powerful medicines to change the course of the disease. It was just the first trials that come out. And in fact, the book was completed in 2009, and the first trials had not even come out then. This is a little funny trivia story that I'd almost forgotten about this until somebody mentioned it to me a year ago. I think the first real paper that I wrote as a fellow was on uh, CTLA-4. It was looking back at the series at NCI of patients who had been given CTLA-4 and responded, and this paper basically identified the strong association between autoimmunity and their response to it. Right. Of course, this will be interesting later in our discussion because I want to, of course, talk about James Allison. So we'll come back to that. But you're right. That was sort of when it went from you had interleukin-2 that worked in maybe 10%, 15% of patients, but you couldn't predict why. That was the bigger question. You didn't know why were some responding, and why were they only responding with certain cancers, to where we are today, where it's really been a transformation in the last 15 years. Absolutely. And so when we started the film version of Emperor with Ken Burns, uh, which I obviously was very close, I worked very closely with Ken, I should say that the gene is also being made into a film by Ken Burns. Oh my God. It's like Christmas all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost completely shot. We're sort of moving towards edit editing phases and so forth. But the, When can people expect that? Oh, it's already been scheduled. I think it's winter or fall 2019. So it's on the... It's on so the, about a year from now. Yeah, about a year from now. Yeah. Um, we're working through footage and historical footage and archival footage and so forth. But to wind backwards, the crucial piece that had been added since the book was, of course, immunological therapy. So... Much of what the last episode was around this new burgeoning field, I mean, in the first meeting that we had around the transformation of the book into the documentary film, the first thing that was raised is what's changed. And the answer was very obvious. What's changed is immunological therapy. It might have been emphasized as much in the book, and I may have just missed it. Or it's possible you also observed this as a change. But I believe it will factor into the 10th edition, which I can't wait to get my hands on, is the role of obesity in cancer. Yes. As if I recall in the documentary, you said, look, this is now becoming basically the second leading preventable cause of cancer after smoking, which was, again, I was aware of that at that point in time because of the work that I'd been doing and, and sort of my little echo chamber. But I thought, this is a PBS special. This is not something that I think most people would appreciate. This is becoming a first for many people to hear. That's right. And the one thing that we should make clear is that every word in that PBS document was vetted by some of the most important and thoughtful scientists and cancer biologists and physicians and physician scientists and cancer advocates across the world. There's a backstory. In other words, the script was vetted over and over again so that we wouldn't say things that were misinforming the public or or because this is a, this documentary is for all time. Ken Burns' work is evergreen. Hopefully my work is evergreen. So it was very, very carefully vetted. And it was quite clear by the time the documentary came out that the signals that we were picking up around obesity and cancer were becoming extraordinarily clear for some cancers, obviously not for other cancers. 
And the provocative statement that sits behind all of this is that really since the last 20 odd years, maybe even 30 odd years, we have been struggling, struggling to find preventable human chemical carcinogens of substantial impact. Every word in that sentence is important. We have certainly found chemical, new chemical carcinogens in humans, but often in that affect small pockets of people who are exposed to those carcinogens. We have found lots and lots of chemical carcinogens which have moderate to very small impact if you look at populations overall. The bar might be smoking. So smoking is a, is a good bar. This is a smoking or tobacco smoke is a chemical carcinogen which is removable or preventable and it has substantial human impact across populations. Changing smoking behavior can change fundamentally the epidemiology of cancers across nations. If that bar is smoking, we have struggled for the last 20 odd years to find things of that magnitude and effect. The direct impact of that is when people come to me and they say, well, what do you do to prevent cancer in yourself and your family, I have to sort of casually or not so casually admit that not very much. I obviously don't smoke, but it's not like I'm eating goji berries or, or avoiding some fundamental thing that everyone else is not in the know about because there aren't any. I mean, you know, I'm obviously not exposing myself to these rare, unusual occupational cancer carcinogenic agents, but I'm not doing something fundamentally changed that's different from you or anyone else to prevent cancer. The exception to this rule of the 20-odd years of the hunt for chemical carcinogens is obesity. Now, you and I can have a debate. Is obesity a chemical carcinogen? No, not in the traditional sense. Is it even preventable? Maybe, but we have to think twice or three times about it. There's a role of genetics and environment in all of this. And even do we think it's obesity per se or hyperinsulinemia or any other endocrine? Exactly. First of all, is it an endocrine problem? Is it an inflammatory problem? Or is it a metabolic problem? There are at least three horns. Obesity is such a... A, such a crude phenotype. That's right. That, at least, to your point, has at least three, if not six, underlying phenotypes that each of which mechanistically would make a lot of sense for that's right. accelerating cancer. It's an immunological phenomenon. It is the a, cytokines, the inflammatory, exactly. all of these things. Going back to your general point that obesity was becoming identified uh, more and more clearly as one of the potential causes of cancer or I should say, strongly correlated with the development of cancer, so strongly that we think that there's a causal link based on all everything that we know about epidemiology, some cancers, that we began to take this seriously. And we're still taking it seriously, but as you're pointing out, there are several horns underneath that blanket of obesity that we understand very crudely, and we have to figure out which of these is driving the cancer risk. I would like to spend the next six hours discussing with you the tenets of writing for selfish reasons, but instead I'll punt that to a, we'll do, we'll have dinner in a couple of weeks and we'll finish that discussion. I want to talk about another book you wrote that doesn't get as much attention, which is The Laws of Medicine. You wrote that after Emperor, before the gene, correct? That's right. So Laws of Medicine has a very different mandate, as it were, and that's because the book came out in association with TED. They had commissioned 10 books by 10 thinkers around the world. And they asked me to write a book on that. And it's it's necessarily a small book. It's really a, you know, the the mandate was to write basically a 75-page book expanding on a single, very, very incisive idea. So that's the laws of medicine, yes. If I I got them correctly, the three laws are a a strong intuition is much more powerful than a weak test. Uh How did you think of that? And what is the most important application of that law to the way you think about medicine or specifically oncology today? This to me is one of the great neglected ideas in medicine, perhaps one of the great neglected ideas in the world. 
this idea initially comes from Thomas Bayes. This is a Bayesian idea. Thomas Bayes was a cleric, but by evening he was a mathematician and an economist. And he let, his work leads to one of the most seminal and funny thought experiments that I've ever encountered, which is the following. And I, I sometimes quiz my, my daughters with it, which, which is the following. This is not Thomas Bayes' own example, but it arises out of Thomas Bayes' work. And he, one might imagine going to a street fair and encountering a man who's uh, tossing coins. And he tosses coins, and your job is to predict whether the next flip, coin flip, is going to be heads or tails. And so he tosses the coin 20 times, and all 20 times it's tails. So then he turns to the crowd, and he says, what's the next coin flip going to be heads or tails? Now, the mathematician in the crowd, who's the professor of mathematics... Uh, says 50%. Says 50%. And, you know, everyone says, absolutely right. <laughs> but the child in the crowd says, no, no, you don't understand. This is a stupid problem. It's the coin's rigged. The coin has only has two heads or two tails, as case may be. And the child's right. And what's important about that insight is that the mathematician imagines the world, This in this case, this is not a stab at mathematicians in general, but the professor of mathematics thinks of the world as having no history, as having no a priori's. It's a world that's created de novo every time. The coin is flipped and its heads and tails equal every time. But the child knows, and I, all humans know, that in fact the world doesn't behave like that. Everything has priors. And you need to understand those priors before you can understand the posteriors. There's wisdom in that idea. And it took someone like Thomas Bayes to figure that out, that most of our lives, we aren't living our lives like the crazy mathematician professor. We are living our lives like the child. We're thinking to ourselves, well, what was the prior antecedent? Imagine this is true for any corner of your life. The first question you ask yourself when you're trying to solve a problem, trying to understand the cosmos, trying to understand something, you ask yourself, well, what was the prior like? Did the sun set in the west last night? And how about the night before? And maybe I don't need to create a formula to figure out whether the sun is going to set on the west or the east tomorrow. It's because it's set on the west every time. There are obviously loopholes and gaps to this kind of thinking. There are surprises that you can miss. So Bayes' fundamental idea was that you can only interpret a test in the light of what that test has predicted in the past. It's an extraordinarily important idea in the way we think about, about the universe, that the past performance of a test tells you something, not everything, but tells you something about the future performance of a test. And you can apply it to many, many things in the world. You can apply it to any kind of thinking, economic, economic thinking, climate change-oriented thinking, that the past is a guide to the future, not only in a kind of loose way, but you're really using a rheostat weighted strongly by the past. And this, of course, applies to medicine. And it's a forgotten rule in medicine. Although it does seem like one of the things that I've always felt physicians innately do well without realizing it, which is the opposite of where I want to be, not to take the pot shots, but I think where we do very poorly is in understanding asymmetric risk. So Nassim Taleb has written a lot about asymmetric risk. And I think he's absolutely right to be critical of not just physicians, but basically most people. So, so my argument is... We are innately wired to be Bayesian. We are absolutely not innately wired to appreciate risk. And both of these are important. That's in, right. In, so in, one of them we have to hone so much more because I think it just doesn't come naturally. I, I played a funny experiment, which you'll appreciate. I'll send you the list and you'll have a field day with it. It's 20 questions and each one is a quantitative question with an answer, but they're not obvious. You would never, it's not like how many you know presidents were there or something where you might know the answer. 
you ask the group, we're gonna give you these 20 questions. I want you to answer each question, not with a number, but with a 95% confidence interval. I see. You know the game? No, I don't know the game, but it's so, an interesting game, yeah. Okay, so interesting game. So at the end of 20 questions, if you've done it correctly, you should have 19 out of 20 of those ranges correct. I've never met a person who can come close. You almost without exception get like seven of the 20 right. You can't even contemplate what that variability is. So the second law was that uh, normals teach us rules, outliers teach us laws. So this, of course, these were very carefully, I mean, I, I thought I've spent a lot of time thinking about them. Of course, this is the anti-Bayesian law. This is the, exactly what you're talking about. This is the idea that simultaneously in the medical brain has to live the idea that the Bayesian idea that when you hear hooves think horses, not zebras, famous medical tenet, hoof beats outside your window are likely to be horses. They're very unlikely to be zebras. The second law is once in a while they are zebras and you need tools. You need special ideas, special tools to figure out what these outliers look like, who they are, how to find them, and how to quickly find them so that you can identify them and triage them differently. So in some ways, these two laws are yin-yang. They polarize against each other. And what's interesting about them is that they both in medicine can both can be simultaneously true in the same way as our assumption of asymmetric risk is simultaneously true with the idea that our understanding of the base of a world in the Bayesian way is helpful and important. So the second law is about how do you identify outliers, how outliers tell us about the nature of normalcy, how they tell us about how complex interactions can produce occasional far outsiders and how those outsiders really challenge us to define what these interactions look like in real life. I mean, the simple example is it's very, very hard to figure out the genetics of any disease without finding the rare people who have the disease as a consequence of a mutation. The classic example, of course, is that we would not have an idea how to regulate our body or, or to prevent heart attacks if we hadn't paid extraordinarily close attention to a small family, small groups of families that had a mutation in the gene that controls cholesterol metabolism. Most people don't have this mutation because those families are quickly extinguished, we think, because they die of heart attacks. They have all sorts of problems. They die of heart attacks. But by paying extreme attention to this one family that has a mutation, they're rare. Scientists all of a sudden uncovered a whole cosmos in which we understand now cholesterol metabolism. And because of that cholesterol metabolism, other scientists eventually developed the first statins. So all of this, you know, the fact that hundreds of thousands of people in the world are taking this medicine to prevent heart attacks, tracks back to a rare family where, because of a genetic mutation, they had a very, very high risk of cardiac disease. And of course, now we know there's a whole family of those people. There's at least 2,000 of those mutations that produce that phenotype. And these natural experiments are actually a remarkable thing. And of course, bringing it back to the gene, to now have a tool, a probe, to be able to explore that is, is amazing. The third law... For every perfect or exceptional medical experiment, there is there's a human bias that goes along with it. Again, these are unique to medicine. And what's interesting about them is that they are unique, uh, to me at least, what's interesting, is that they're unique to the day-to-day practice of medicine, but they apply for every, I think, they apply to every corner of life. You don't have to be a doctor to realize that for every every time we think of something, if you're really skeptical thinkers, we have to think about the bias that comes intrinsically with that thought. In other words, every single declarative claim about the universe that we're making 
must have necessarily a declarative bias that comes with it. They're matched. If you want to be a scientist, if you want to be a skeptic, your real job, aside from being creative and designing experiments, is to find for every single declarative claim that you're making, the bias that's drives sitting like a little devil buried inside that declarative claim. Because I promise you, everyone has one. Each one of these claims has one. And Richard Feynman, who listeners of this podcast know, is one of my heroes. One of my kids is named after him. Is he named Feynman or Richard? His middle name is Feynman. I see. Yeah. And my wife at first was like, why would we do that? But then once she had read Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, a couple of times because she'd read it once before she realized why. But Feynman said eloquently, right, the job in science is not to fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. That's right. So to your point, the only thing I would disagree with what you've said, Sid, is I don't think these are unique to medicine. I think I, these are laws of science. <laughs> I hope. Right? And maybe laws of life on some, on some yeah, dimension. I, so the mandate here really was to use this book as a kind of springboard to challenge the way we think about virtually all aspects of, of how we live. You're going to read an, an article in the New York Times tomorrow that will make some claims about some politician somewhere in Oklahoma, or you're going to read about an economic paper that is now being presented to the feds. And your job is to be adequately skeptical about it and understand what are the priors? How do we explain this particular fact based on the priors? Are the priors do the priors matter? To use a very topical example, does someone's past behavior in college or in school, high school, tell us about how he or she is going to be a judicial candidate? Or does their behavior under scrutiny in any way predict their behavior when no one's looking? That's right. That's another question. The second question that you might ask here is, again, it's an outlier question, right? Scrutiny versus not scrutiny. Are they, do they become outliers to themselves if they're scrutinized if they're, versus when they're not scrutinized? And the third question is, when I read this story, what are my biases? Am I reading it because I'm a man? Am I reading it because I have a particular experience of my, in my own lifetime, myself, my sister, my, my daughter, my friend, my colleague? Is that coloring the way that I read this particular story? So absolutely. And you know, this thinking goes on over and over again. This, these are circular processes. Do those biases have priors? Do the priors have biases? And so forth. So you can use these. I mean, I, I certainly use these tools in clinical clinical practice. Yeah, it's a beautiful, as you said, it's a very short book. But again, we'll we'll certainly make sure people have those linked to it because I I think it's a great way of teaching people how to think. And that's again, I just don't think we're innately wired for every facet of thinking. Now, going back to your background in immunology, very recently we had a very exciting for those of us in this space, very exciting Nobel Prize awarded. And it was, as we were discussing before we started recording, it wasn't so much around immunotherapy, but a very specific element of it, which are the development of checkpoint inhibitors. Two of them in particular were basically acknowledged here, CTLA-4, which I mentioned earlier, and PD-1. Tell me why these are so exciting. They're exciting for many reasons. They are exciting for, again, some history and some background. The story, as it were, is exciting because if you ask the question, in the 1990s, what's the relationship between cancer and the immune system? You'd get a kind of diffuse answer. You'd get an answer which could be very unclear because there were all sorts of complicated lines of evidence. One line of evidence was that in patients with a complete collapse of the immune system, such as patients with HIV, or complete collapse of at least of one wing of the immune system. They would get these cancers you've, nobody else could get. But what's interesting about them, and this is where the thought experiment, this is where the brain cells start sort of ticking and wondering, they would typically get viral cancers, viruses that 
would now get unleashed. We now know many of them. Viruses like human papillomavirus, they would get cervical cancers, they would get anal cancers. So a lot of viral cancers, but patients with HIV did not generally get lung cancer. I never even thought of that, Sid. So we have enough data to know that they either at no greater prevalence or even at a lower prevalence when, when you start to talk about, you know, for example, lung cancer or GBM or pancreatic cancer. I never thought of that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very important. So the data are mixed because, of course, in the 1980s, they weren't living long enough. So all that we know is that the first groups of cancers that cropped up in these men and women were not lung cancers. They were not pancreatic cancer. So at the first pass with that cut short data set, you might begin to imagine then if that's the case, the immune system completely collapses, you only get a certain kind of cancer, then what is the possible role of the immune system in, in cancer control? And you might, if you were a nihilist, you might have mm. given up in the 1990s and said, well, you know, you take the whole immune system away and nothing really happens even with this cut short data set. So maybe there isn't such a complex interaction. Well, it turns out that people like Jim Allison and his Japanese colleague did not put the immune system away. They put that data aside, said, this goes back to the laws of medicine. They said, sure, it tells you a little bit, but it doesn't tell you the full story. The full story turns out there's one layer deeper. The full story turns out that in people who don't have a collapse of the immune system, whose immune system is otherwise intact, cancer cells, not, not all cancers, but some cancers, make specific factors. In fact, they evolve. The word make is the wrong word here. They evolve so that they put up specific factors, put up specific signals that inactivate the immune system or that make the immune system no longer able to kill or recognize the cancer cell. And the identification of these specific pathways, these specific factors, was what led to the Nobel Prize because in further work, Jim Allison and, and again, his colleagues, this, this is a big wide field, showed that if you inactivate these specific factors, if you drive nails through them using a variety of methods, then all of a sudden the cancers become revisible to the immune system and the immune system can attack and kill the cancer cells. Now, why is it exciting? It's exciting for many reasons. First of all, it's important to realize that not all cancers respond. We don't know why some do and some don't. Melanoma is highly responsive. It's an immunologically engaged tumor. Is it because the melanoma has so many antigens that it will suddenly be more recognizable? Is it because the skin is such a lymphoid organ? Is it the right environment? We don't know all of these questions. The other thing to realize is that people have responses and some people continue to respond. Some other people, sadly, will relapse and they'll go, you know, the cancers will start growing back in the context of their re-educated immune system. And that leads to the second question, which is what happens then? Is there a second pathway. And this is an important idea, I think, that goes back to your first question, which is about whether this is depressing or not. The important thing is once you drive a single stake through cancer's heart, it's like placing the first crampon on a climb. You see, if there's no crampon that's placed on the climb, you can't climb a mountain. It seems like a wall. It's a blank wall, and you don't know where to go left or whether to go right or what to do. Once you plant that first crampon, and it sticks. And it sticks. 
you all of a sudden the whole face of the mountain becomes it's a different mountain it's now. a different mountain now because now you can ask the question because the first crampon was planted in that particular place and it's stuck and it's stuck i have a new vantage point exactly. the perspective has changed that's right and so this is the important piece to realize about cancer research and perhaps about all research is that the first crampon or the first stake through cancer's heart is an incredibly important stake because then you can ask what i call linear questions Before that first one is placed, the questions are non-linear. You don't know where to place it. The whole map is open. Once you drive a stake through the first question, the world becomes more linear. You can now ask the question, well, what's the mechanism of resistance to that? And when you when you find that, what's the mechanism of resistance to that? And so all of a sudden, the perspective is different because you're, you've climbed through that first. And that's usually where the Nobel Prizes are given. You're, the Nobel Prizes are given often for planting the first stake. through the heart of a disease through the heart of a problem and that's why this nobel prize is important it's not of course as you're saying this does not encapsulate the field of tumor immunology in general there is it's a wide field our own lab does a whole bunch of work in tumor immunology but we're we're on the shoulders of those prior giants as it were and so that's the recognition that's been given here you said something that i think is so important and worth reiterating There's also something about immunology and immunotherapy that's quite interesting as far as planting that stake which is the durability of response. It is often the case that when you have an immunologic remission, it is a durable remission. It is not always the case, but it is much more likely the case than when you say, for example, see a chemotherapeutic remission or even a surgical remission. On a personal level, I have a very close friend who was diagnosed with colon cancer 10 years ago at a very young age. You know, he might have been 40. and that was unusual in and of itself i remember talking i went to the hospital when he had his colectomy spoke with the surgeon after it sounded like a horrible case huge tumor the mesentery was full of nodes which i assumed would be positive every 26 nodes sampled all came back negative huh. my friend was adopted we later realized he had lynch syndrome 8 years later he goes on to develop pancreatic adenocarcinoma unresectable So it's encased the mesenteric vessels he cannot have a Whipple procedure and as you know and unfortunately many people listening to this will know that is a death sentence yeah. that's a non-negotiable you will not be alive in 9 months and he was put on an anti-PD1 therapy because he happened to have as you would know these patients with Lynch are going to be much more likely to be susceptible to checkpoint inhibitors 2 years later he's disease free right just unbelievable stories. Yeah. And I think your point is an elegant one that I'd never really thought of before, which is focus less on the fact that we haven't solved the problem and more on the fact that we have made a finite and real step towards establishing a new place, a new location for That's which right. to view this disease. That's right. So I describe this as taking a nonlinear problem into a linear problem. Now, of course the answers are often not linear per se, but it gives you a route. I mean, we'll come back to the metabolism study that we did with Luke Cantley. That is a great example of taking a nonlinear problem and converting into a linear problem. Now, I'll tell you about that in in a second, but any time this was the case with Gleevec too. Let's tell people what Gleevec is. Yeah, I, yeah it's so a good Gleevec story. So Gleevec is a good example of a drug where we learned to target a mutant cancer gene and it's actually the gene product. So in that case the cancer it's a blood cancer called chronic myelogenous leukemia was also a death sentence and also GI stromal tumors and GI stromal tumors yeah chronic myelogenous leukemia was a death sentence people had to go through transplants i've watched probably a dozen in the pre gleevec era a dozen patients die of chronic myelogenous leukemia or the complications of transplant i trained briefly as a transplanter and then all of a sudden through the work of many people including Brian Drucker a drug was discovered so it, before that 
scientists figured out, based on very careful genetic analysis, that the tumor was being driven by really the work of one gene. And the gene was called BCR ABLE. It's an, it's an oncogene. It's a, not found in normal cells, but found in these cancer cells. And the product of that gene became like, a, like an engine, like a manic engine that was driving these blood cells to go crazy and make more blood cells and proliferate and proliferate and proliferate. And it was this engine gone wild inside a cell. And every time the cell asked the question, should I divide, rather than looking at its normal state or nutrients, metabolic state, et cetera, the only answer it would ever get was from this engine saying, yes, go ahead, make another cell, divide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this was identified, the, the, exact, the gene product was identified, the protein product of the gene was identified. And then through an elaborate series of experiments and circumstances, chemists found a way to actually jam the engine. Uh, one molecule, human beings, may, we stitch this molecule together. It's, an, it's a remarkable achievement. And once the engine is jammed, it suddenly turns out that the disease goes into remission. This was one of the first examples, there are others, of so-called targeted therapy, where you take, you synthesize a chemical to jam cancer's engines in a cancer-specific way. It doesn't affect normal cells. But what's interesting about that is that some people develop resistance because the engine, cancer cells evolve, and they find a way of, of resisting. But that resistance, it becomes a linear problem. You figure out what the mechanism of the resistance is, and you drive a second stake through cancer's heart. And when it becomes resistant to that, you drive a third stake and so forth. So all of a sudden, the problem which seemed like a big blank rock became a linear problem. So that, that goes back to another example of how that first stake or the first crampon really helps with the problem. And, and now for immunotherapy, immunological therapy, the roadmap is much clearer. Why do some tumors respond and why some don't respond? Is it a question of the environment that the tumor is sitting in? Is it blood vessels? Is it tumor cells? Is it immune cells? These are answerable questions. These are so-called linear questions. But the first big step here was to define the problem. This is really a nice step off to exactly where I know we want to go, which is we've got surgical oncologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. In many ways, a subset now of medical oncology is immunobased oncology. The work that you, Lou, and many others are now doing is potentially another branch of oncology called metabolic oncology. So you're beyond gracious in your suggesting I have even something to do with helping that evening turn into a what sounds like a very productive collaboration between you and Lou. And I'll be talking with Lou as well in the next month, I'm sure. But let's talk a little bit about what came out of that collaboration and certainly bring it back to Ben Hopkins' paper that was in Nature, I believe. It was in Nature, yeah, yeah, two weeks, three weeks ago, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the question. What were you trying to understand? So the question is, there's a very wide question and then there's a very narrow question. The wide question is, how does the body's metabolic state affect cancer? It's a very big question because cancers, like all cells, are eating nutrients as well to, in order to grow. And the question, therefore, is the cancer eating a different set of nutrients than normal cells? This work goes back to famous work by Otto Warburg done in the early 1900s. 20s, yeah, 1920s. 20s, is that right? Yeah. Where Otto Warburg was one of the first people to make the hypothesis that there's something fundamentally different about, I mean, we won't go into great details, but it's fundamentally different in which the cancer cells metabolize compared to normal cells. They use fundamentally different pathways to met metabolize. And if you could find a way to target these metabolic alterations in cancer cells, you would find an anti-cancer drug. So, but that question has been hanging around our field for a long time. And as our understanding of normal metabolism has changed, we've begun to identify not just one, 
but dozens of nutrient pathways that cancers use that may or may not be different from normal cells, maybe slightly different from normal cells, maybe a lot different from normal cells. So that's one big question. The second question, which is a slightly narrower question, is that when you give a drug, whatever drug it might be, your favorite chemotherapy, your favorite drug, any drug, does it change the metabolism of the cancer cell? And does it change the metabolism of the body? And could this be a mechanism by which cancer cells become sensitive or resistant to chemotherapy? So these are two related questions. Again, to reiterate, one question is, how is the cancer cell's metabolism different from the normal cell in normal circumstances? And the second question is, how is the cancer cell's metabolism differ from a normal cell in the context of giving a drug? Yeah, in other words, can a nutritional state be exploited and or a drug sensitivity be exploited through a nutritional exactly paradigm right. shift? Those are the two questions. So we focused in this particular study. We actually are interested in both. I'm interested in both. But we focused on the second question. And the second question in this particular case was that there was a very promising group of medicines that was being used in clinic. In fact, I had used them as a trialist. They had come really out of Luke Cantley's path-defining work. He had defined the pathway or the signals that these medicines attack. And there was an enormous amount of optimism because this was considered a fundamental pathway. This is the beauty, by the way, of being in a place like New York or Boston. It's You can talk about someone doing this. I mean, Lou was in Boston when much of this work is done. He's now here in New York and you don't have to collaborate with a guy across the world. You can collaborate with a guy who's on the Upper East Side instead of Chelsea. (laughs) That's right. So Lou's work over the last decades had been to define this pathway and ultimately led to the formation or the creation of these new medicines. They're called PI3 kinase inhibitors and they go by fancy names like Duvelisib and things like that. But anyway, when they came to clinic, Surprisingly, there were some responses, but there was a lot of resistance in patients that tumors were resistant to the drugs and didn't respond. And that was a puzzle that Lou had come up with in his own work. And then separately, seven miles uptown, I was scratching my head about the same puzzle because I'd been using these same drugs in cancer patients and finding that patients became resistant or were resistant to start. And so what was chalked out that on a napkin that evening was we had thought of lots of ways that these patients had, could become resistant. We had thought, oh, maybe the tumor had a mutation. Well, and there's one other point, I guess, to add just that we remember, but maybe it's worth reiterating, is a lot of the patients that were on these began to develop phenotype. like They, they looked like they were diabetic. Yeah, so that's the point that I was coming to in a second. We didn't know if that meant that that was the source of the resistance. That's but it right. Was, was it true, true, and unrelated? Yeah, the question was, was it true, true, and unrelated? I mean, you can think of many other mechanisms of resistance. You can say the tumors became, got a mutation. You could say the host had some problem. You could write down on a piece of paper a thousand ways. Those were the traditional ways that one would explain resistance. The traditional ways of thinking about tumor resistance is mutation. The host eats up the drug. The non-traditional way, and this is what the innovation in the study was, that what if this diabetes that we were observing, the high levels of sugar and the high levels of insulin, insulin being the most important piece of this, what if the drug was causing diabetes separately from the tumor, given to normal people that the drug would cause diabetes, in some people worse than others, and that diabetic phenotype, that diabetic state, the hyperinsulinemic state, was being used or exploited by the tumor to essentially become resistant to the drug. It's a little bit like, and the analogy that I drew, I remember, on the napkin. It's funny. I still remember the table we sat yeah, at. I still Isn't remember the table. Yeah, 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 exactly right. The drawing. So Lou and I were batting this idea back and forth while you, you were eating nothing. <laughs> 
And and the idea was that, to me, it reminded me of the famous story of the woodcutter who's sitting on a tree limb and chops off his own limb and falls down. And I drew this picture, I remember, of the woodcutter on a tree limb because what happens is that the body mounts an insulinemic response to the drug. That insulinemic response goes to the cancer and starts feeding the cancer and then the cancer becomes resistant. So you essentially undo all the good that you've done with the drug by cutting off your own limb because of this intrinsic circuit. And the long and short of it is that that's basically in animal models that happens to be true. So we showed it using formal systems and formal methods that this insulinemia is a consequence of the drug, has nothing to do with the tumor, has nothing to do with anything else. If you give the drug, the drug goes into the liver and the pancreas and causes a sort of a pre-diabetic state that's often worsened if you're already in a pre-diabetic state. This hyperinsulinemia is used then by the tumor to become resistant even while the drug is present. It becomes a pathway by which the tumor becomes resistant. And most interestingly, that you can paralyze this resistance by putting animals on a ketogenic diet. So basically, there's never any sugar source to drive the insulin. You blunt the insulin response so acutely that you can no longer get the insulin high. Again, this is not to be confused with with the idea that this is a sugar-feeding tumor idea. This is not a sugar-feeding tumor paradigm. Because to be clear, on a ketogenic diet, your glucose levels might go down from normal, but it's not an enormous reduction. Even in a complete fast, you'll still maintain at least three millimolar of glucose. It's the insulin that becomes virtually unmeasurable. That's right. So this is an insulin feeding the tumor question. And so I think the three points that need to be made about the study to be very clear. First of all, it's an animal study. We're now launching a human study that will launch in November with patients with lymphomas, endometrial cancer, and breast cancer, particularly triple negative breast cancer I'm very keen on studying. Because this is a cancer that has so few options. That's right. There are very, very few options. So that's the human study. The second point that is worthwhile making is that it's sort of like folks don't try this at home. This is a very particular study with a very particular drug on cancers combined with a diet. The study only worked when the drug and the diet were combined. It does not mean that the ketogenic diet is gonna prevent cancer. We don't know this, it's an open question. We're actually studying that separately. Yeah, and I wanna talk just a little bit about that paper because that's, boy, I sure want everyone to make sure they hear that loud and clear because few things upset me more than when I spend a little too much time on Twitter and I come across people who seem to wanna claim that if you're on a ketogenic diet, you can't get cancer or if you have cancer, just go on a ketogenic diet, you're gonna be fine. not, in fact, to be very clear. Well, the study, in fact, demonstrated that that was not the case. Not only that, the study also demonstrates that some cancer models, including leukemia, is accelerated on the keto diet. In fact, we have a big follow-up study to try to figure out why some cancers are accelerated by keto alone, but when you combine it with the drug, they actually go back down into deep remission. The third point to make is that it seems to be mutation agnostic, and that by that I mean this is a very important idea, which is that 12 tumor models responded, 12. I was not aware that it was that high. Yeah, 12, and actually all 12 that we tested responded. Every one of them responded, and it didn't matter what oncogenes you had or what tumor suppressor genes were mutated. They all responded to different levels. Uh, leukemias respond, they become, then they relapse at least in the models. Endometrial cancers, we can't get them to grow. Pancreatic cancers respond extremely strongly. So it's another example where you're not targeting, it seems, 
a mutation. This is not like Gleevec in which you're driving a stake into the engine of the cancer or that engine. Yeah, this is a much more global assault. Yeah, it's a much more global assault. In in fact, in some ways, it's parallel or akin to this immunotherapy in the sense that the immune system doesn't care if you have RAS or doesn't seem to care at the first approximation, whether you have a mutation in one gene or another gene, RAS or not RAS. It will kill the tumor cells based on its characteristics of what it sees in the tumor. Similarly here, the, the metabolism seems to be tumor-wide, but not single kinds of cancer-specific. We don't know this to be the case. The 13th model that we try, will maybe this was the one that not, won't work. But this has generated a lot of excitement for this reason. You know, I have a friend who has definitely HER2 new positive, maybe ER positive, PR negative, but has stage 4 breast cancer, is in a PF3K inhibitor trial out of Dana-Farber, has been on the trial for probably five years. She's the only survivor. Here's the interesting thing. She's been on a ketogenic, low-carbohydrate diet the entire time. While she was taking inhibitor? Yes. Okay. She's still on the inhibitor. And so what's interesting is I've told Lou about her case because she's fastidious in this. And she's able to get her hemoglobin A1C now under six, which for many of those patients is very difficult. Very hard to do, yeah. When you, me, and Sid had lunch once about two years ago, this is the very first time you ever showed me the data. Yeah, that's right. We brought a computer. We were at that Indian place or that Chinese place on 2nd Avenue. That's right. Yeah. And when you showed me those data, I just immediately thought of her. Mm-hmm. So it's actually been on my list to introduce Lou because she doesn't live in New York. But no, I would love I, to meet I, her. I want to bring yeah. her out and I want you guys to meet her because yeah. the combination of this PI3K inhibitor and this dietary choice she's made, going back to your second rule, right? She's the outlier that, is, right. that is giving you something to probe. Yeah, we hopefully will have many such patients. I don't know. You know, this is why we're running the study. Sid, as you can probably imagine, I could spend another 12 hours speaking with you, but I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're a little late in the day. We got a later start than we wanted, and you've got a long trip home, and I want you to get to see your family. The last question I want to ask you really is one that I need you to be a little bit immodest with, (laughs) which is how do you do what you do? I don't meet a lot of people that I look at and realize that on every level of their life, they are better than me. You know, usually I meet people and it's like, yeah, they're better at me at those three things, but I can do this one thing better. And and I'm sure I could think of something I do better than you, but it's- it that, would I'm take sure a, you many things. Do you don't know about sense of balance. <laughs> I can probably shoot a bow and arrow better than you. But when I think about how you balance the devotion you have to your patients, to your family, to your research, to your writing- it humbles me. I don't know. Have you put any thought into that? The fact that you created these tenets around writing is very interesting to me. It says that you you aren't just a natural gifted guy that fell out of the sky who figured out how to write. <laughs> you know, you had to work at your craft. Yeah. So how do you work at this craft of just excellence in general? <laughs> the simple rules that I have is I'm a very question and project driven person. If I set projects, I'll usually fulfill them. Again, it's the same sort of crampon in the mountain rule, which is that in order to write a book, you have to write the first line of the book. And inevitably, that's not going to be the first line that survives. In order to do research, you have to do one experiment. And inevitably, that experiment is going to not work out. You're going to do 10, 15 iterations of it, etc. To me, the fundamental rule that, that works for me is just to throw something at the world. The first line, the first experiment, the first idea. And then keep at it. I keep at it over and over again. I come back to it. I come back to it over and over again. And I keep asking questions. And then at some point of time, and that's another moment of sensitivity, is to figure out when the work speaks back to you. The experiment starts talking back to you. You have to be really open. Your ears have to be really open. And that's really the skill of a scientist, I think. A scientist, I think, has, or even a writer, they have really two skills and 
and that, that they mix together. The first one is the creative step, putting out the first line, thinking of the idea. You know, I'm going to write a biography of cancer. I'm going to write the history of, of genetics, etc. But the second one is to be open enough to realize when the work starts speaking back to you and let that happen. Let the experiment start talking back to you. Be skeptical of it. Have a conversation with it. Those, I think, are the two skills that I sort of bring to my puzzle. The rest of it is just like everyone else trying to balance eating a meal versus, you know, writing two more lines, stopping, starting, sleeping, the usual. Well, Sid, I don't expect this will be the last time we sit down and do I this. Hope not. There's going to be not, yeah. a lot more stuff to talk about. I can't thank you enough. I consider you, Lou, I mean, some of the other folks we talk about, I mean, real mentors of mine. And it's it's a, it's a privilege. Versa. It's a real privilege to call you a friend and to be able to sit down with you and just my get pleasure. even the tiniest insight into oh, great. My how pleasure. you do your work. Yeah, pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. You can find all of this information and more at peteratiamd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the Nerd Safari at peteratiamd.com. What's a Nerd Safari, you ask? Just click on the link at the top of the site to learn more. Maybe the simplest thing to do is to sign up for my subjectively non-lame once-a-week email where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting papers I've read, and all things related to longevity, science, performance, sleep, etc. On social, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all with the ID Peter Atia MD. But usually Twitter is the best way to reach me to share your questions and comments. Now for the obligatory disclaimer. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, I take conflicts of interest very seriously. For all of my disclosures, the companies I invest in and or advise, please visit peteratiamd.com forward slash about.